Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Well, good morning. If you are uh, a regular Waterbrooker, you will quickly realize uh, we're not in the same spot of the Bible as we usually are. Uh, we're in, in Matthew's Gospel this morning. Uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke for about a year now, and uh, this week we're taking a step aside from Luke's Gospel. We're jumping over to Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to sort of be doing an overview of the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you're visiting us this morning, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm the pastor for student and young adult ministries. The reason we're in the Gospel of Matthew this morning is we are kicking off our student ministries this week. And for the first half of the year, we're going to be studying through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so when Kevin asked me if I could preach, I immediately said no, because I need to study Matthew 5. And he said, perfect, preach that. So here we are. Why don't we pray and ask God to help us? Um, I'll tell you what, if, if the Sermon on the Mount lands on you, you'll never be the same. Uh, Jesus turns the world upside down in these chapters. May he do it with us as well. So let's pray together. Jesus, our greatest desire is for you and you alone. We just sang it. We want nothing else. We want nothing more. So often we come with our own agendas, our own plans, our own ambitions, our own desires. We bring all of that into your kingdom and you say, let's reorient everything. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. We do pray now, O oh God, that you would open up our ears, our hearts, our minds, that we would hear your word, respond, and never be the same. Our greatest longing and prayer is that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So it's been said that every generation, to one degree or another, is frustrated with the world that they are inheriting from previous generations. Every generation is grasping at answering the question, what's the good life? How are things supposed to be? What's the ideal Life, because it's obviously not supposed to be like this, is it? It's no secret that we live in a culture that is telling us how we ought to be thinking about these things. We're constantly bombarded with very specific messages that are certainly shaping the way the next generation is viewing the world, but it's not just the next generation, is it? All of us have assumptions about the way life is supposed to be. And we have to ask the question, who am I actually listening to? Today we're doing an overview, like I said, of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew's Gospels, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in it, Jesus is coming and he is claiming that God's redeeming rule, 
that was promised throughout the Old Testament has come in him. The main theme of the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount is what life under the reign of King Jesus is like. And he's saying, this is what the truly good life looks like in the middle of a fallen world. So in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he's not twisting our arms and, and offering us something we don't want. He's saying, this is the life you were made for. This is the life you long for. This is the life where flourishing happens. All of us are reaching and longing for the good life. We have mental images and longings in our hearts as to how things are supposed to be. We are all living for something, aren't we? Some of us think, if I just get married, and then I'll be satisfied. That's the good life. Find my soulmate, get married, have kids, settle down. That's the good life. Others think, I just need to be true to myself, and then I'll finally have peace. The good life is finally figuring out who I am deep down inside and doing whatever it takes to express myself. A lot of us feel like we just need to get through this season of utter chaos, and then, then, things will be okay. The good life consists in low demands and a clearer schedule and no financial burdens or pressures. If we can just achieve these things, then we'll be satisfied. But if we slow down long enough and simply look at the outcome of our ambitions, we have to ask, do I have it right? Have I found what I'm looking for? In all our busyness, all our hustle and bustle, all our video games and TikTok, selfies and self-expression, have I found what I'm truly looking for? In the Beatitudes, what Pastor Gabe just read, the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount, right, Jesus begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, the only way we're going to find what we are truly looking for is when we give up trying to figure it all out on our own. We collapse into the arms of Jesus and embrace what he has to say. When we realize that we don't have what it takes and Christ alone does, then we're on the verge of the good life that we were made to have. If you've seen or read the Chronicles of Narnia, it's almost like being poor in spirit is a wardrobe that bursts into Narnia. As a great hymn states, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, and naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, vile eye to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's where we start, and we never move on from it. Jesus is saying it is those and only those who stop trying to be the author of their own lives and cling to Jesus by faith who tap into the blessed life. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven now. Life with Jesus, surrendered to the reign of Jesus, is the life we were made to have. This is the truly good life is what Jesus is saying. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the old 20th century Welsh preacher, he says this. He says, the world today is looking for and desperately needs true Christians. I'm never tired of saying that the church needs what the I'm sorry, I'm never tired of saying that what the church needs to do is not to organize evangelistic campaigns to attract outside people, but to begin herself to live the Christian life. 
Waterbrook Church, we all of us, here's, here's the big idea for this morning. We all have a calling to pass the faith on to the next generation. What the next generation needs more than anything else from us is for us to truly live the Christian life. We need to continually go back to the basics and humbly embrace what Jesus says the good life really is. And we find that in the Sermon on the Mount. So it starts with us. So today I want to look at three fundamental truths we need to continually embrace as we follow Jesus in the good life. These are themes that we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, we need to embrace our God-given identity. Number two, we need to embrace our God-given community. And number three, we need to embrace God's amazing grace. So number one, the good life consists in embracing our God-given identity. One of the greatest sources of anxiety for much of our society is seeking to find out the answer to the question, who am I? And how do I find that out? In the 2013 Disney movie Frozen, Princess Elsa captured the mindset of our culture perfectly in the song, Let It Go. And in that song, she bursts out, she says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. Another author, he says this, commenting on the current cultural moment. He says, autonomy, authenticity, individuality, freedom. If, If the dominant mindset we are living under today could be summed up, it would be, it would coalesce around these themes. David Brooks labels it the the big me. Philosopher Charles Taylor, Taylor calls it the culture of authenticity, alternatively named the I world, expressive individualism, or the age of the selfie. This mindset assumes each of us have a true authentic self hidden within us, and the path to human flourishing involves discovering and expressing that true self. We must be free from any external authority or expectations that might constrain who we really are. We live in a world where the unquestioned assumption is that true joy, true freedom, true happiness is found within, and we must discover and express who we most deeply are in order to tap into the good life. We have to be authentic to our feelings. I alone can determine what is true for me. Freedom consists of breaking any external bonds that prevent me from doing and being whatever I want to be. Kara Powell, she's a, a scholar who works a lot with the next generation. She works for Fuller Youth Institute. She, she paints this picture for us Uh, when she's trying to describe the angst that much of the next generation faces when they're trying to discover their identity. She says this. She says, imagine every teenager's day is like a play uh, performed before a packed audience. On the far right of the theater sits their nuclear family surrounded by external family members. The center of the audience is full of friends from school, work, sports, their neighborhood, and other extracurricular activities. Just to the left of these diverse friends are members of their church. Next to church members sit several rows of teachers, coaches, and mentors. In the front row are those they follow on social media with other cultural messengers about success, beauty, and achievement perched in the balcony. The teenager's task? To try to please every audience member at every moment. It's exhausting to switch from being the family jokester at home to the obedient academic at school to the faith-filled youth group superstar at church. You feel the pressure. Do you feel the angst? 
at one hand, we live in a culture that says you must be true to yourself no matter what. You alone got to tap into who you really are and break every bond that tells you otherwise. At the same time, our culture is saying you better fit in. You better please. You feel the pressure? Feel the angst? You feel the tension? Now, this isn't only a stressor for the youth and the next generation. This is something we all face. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us know deep down the feeling of being a fraud. Portraying to the world a certain image, but deep down we know we're something completely different than what we're portraying. Just terrified that the ball's going to drop and we'll be found out. So the question we must ask ourselves is who defines our identity? Who defines who we are? Is it ourselves? Is it the people and pressures around us? Friends, the good news of the gospel is that God in Christ defines who we really are. And praise God for that because that means that all the pressure melts away. In our search of self-discovery and filling a certain role, this is amazing. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, 17 times Jesus refers to God as our Father or your Father. For example, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Or in Matthew chapter 6, your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Or Matthew chapter 7, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus is speaking loudly and clearly. If you're a Christian, God is your Father which means that your fundamental identity, your search for who I am at the bottom of it all, you are a loved, accepted, cherished child of God. Now here's the thing. Not everyone has God as their father. Not everyone is a child of God. What do I mean? You see, everyone has been created by God and thus everyone is an image bearer of God, which means that every single person, regardless of your religion, your social status, your ethnicity, your your financial situation, your sexual identity, everyone, because they are born in the image of God, deserves to be treated with respect, with honor, with dignity. Because God has stamped his divine image upon every single person you'll ever meet. But not everyone's a child of God. In fact, the scriptures say that we are all born as children of wrath. And Jesus says that those who don't follow him, he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, you're just like your father, the devil. And the thing is, we can't force ourselves into the family of God. Jesus says that unless God causes you to be born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless God adopts you into the family of God, you'll remain under the enslavement of sin and Satan all your days. In John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, we read this. It says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, that is Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, right? Not being part of a certain family won't get you in, nor of the will of flesh. We can't will ourselves into the family God, nor of the will of man. Others can't wish us in, but of God. God must cause us to be born again. Waterbrook, if you trust in Jesus today, if you believe in him today, that means that God has caused you to be born again and has adopted you into his family. Praise be to God for that. 
And he did that. He made that possible by sending his own son to go to the cross to die the death that we all deserve and rose victoriously from the dead, justifying us once and for all. This means that you can take the load off and breathe again. All the noise of who you have to be, all the pressure of fitting in and being a certain way, all the conflicting desires in your own heart can be silenced. And we can hear the voice of our Father who says to us in Christ, you're my beloved son and daughter. With you, I'm well pleased. You're enough. See, when we build our identity on anything and everything other than God, we realize how fragile we become. Right? When we build our life on our jobs or vocations and get our sense of value and worth from it, we'll be enslaved to it and, and, and not be able to say no and set up appropriate boundaries so that we can really care and love and serve the things that matter most. And if we lose our job, then we'll be utterly crushed. If we build our lives on romance or finding a soulmate, we'll either be utterly enslaved to what people think of us and, and we'll settle for anyone who will have us, or if we never find it or we lose it, we'll be devastated. If we're building our lives and our identities on academics, we'll always be under the pressure of having to perform, always having to get the A, always having to study, staying up late, waking up early, going on and on and on, we'll eventually break and we'll be absolutely crushed. Waterbrook, the good news of the gospel means that no matter what happens, no matter what we wrestle with or uh, what our struggles are, nothing and no one can take away our deepest sense of identity. We are children of God. You don't have to gain your acceptance by performing. And you don't have to fear losing your acceptance by blowing it. We can actually be free. Because we're deeply loved. And we no longer have to hide. So as we're thinking through identity, who we most fundamentally are, I want to encourage us to pay attention to the thoughts that go through our minds. Notice the thoughts that say, I'm not blank enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not funny enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not this enough. I'm not that enough. Pay attention to the, the voices, the, 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 the thoughts that come through your mind that say, I'm not blank enough. All these statements shed light on who or where we're really looking for our sense of identity and worth. But not only that, I want you to pay attention to the thoughts that come into your mind that say something like, if only blank, then I would be okay. Right? If only I had more respect from others. If only I was free to express my desires. If only I had more friends. If only you fill in the blank. Right? If we slow down long enough and, and consider what's actually shaping our sense of identity, we'll quickly realize that so many other factors are speaking loudly to us and it's silencing the good news of the gospel and our identity as accepted, loved, and cherished children of God. How often have you heard you're a loved child of God, but it doesn't land? Why is that? That's the most amazing reality in all the universe, and yet it kind of just goes one ear in one ear and out the other, doesn't it? Friends, it's because we're subtly believing all these other lies about who we really are. 
we need to see that for what it is so that we can actually hear clearly who we truly are. In Christ, nothing and no one can take away what is most true about us. We can actually gain a deep level of emotional security and stability. Don't you just feel like you're flying all over the place sometimes emotionally? We can be at peace because we have peace with God. Now, who doesn't want that? So to get really practical with this, I want to encourage you to ask these three questions of yourself, right? Number one, we have to ask, what's really driving my sense of identity? Like, take the time today and actually think through that. Question number two, let's ask ourselves, what influences are actually the loudest in our lives? What messages are we hearing over and over regarding our value, our worth, and our identity, what we should be pursuing, who we should be? What, what's actually influencing us? Lastly, we got to ask, how can we intentionally tune in to the influences in our lives that are reinforcing what God says about us and our true identity? How can we be intentional with this? Um, I would encourage all of us actually today to, 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 to go home and, and think through these questions. We want great stability, security, foundation, who we are in Christ. We actually have to sit down and work it out. This last question, how can we intentionally tune into the influences in our lives? Uh, this leads us to our second point. The good life consists in embracing our God-given community. Point number two, embracing our God-given community. 17 times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus refers to God as our Father, which means we are his children. We've been adopted into his family. We have a new identity as individuals, and that's glorious. Eight times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus refers to brothers and sisters, which means that we're family. We have a new corporate identity. We have an individual identity given by grace from God, and we have a corporate identity given by grace from God. You see, identity isn't just an individual reality. As uh, We as a collective, we as a whole, have been given a new identity. The Christian community is a new family. Listen, it's not like a new family. It's not potentially a new family. The gospel creates a new family. Tim Chester says it clearly. He says, in Christ, we have been restored to what we were originally made to be. Men and women who live in community and are characterized by sincere brotherly and sisterly love. We have been born again for brotherly and sisterly love. The Christian community is not a happy byproduct of our salvation or a convenient help to individual Christians. We have been saved to be God's holy people, to be Christ's bride, to be a new family. In other words, the church, the, the local expression of God's new family, isn't something secondary in God's plan of salvation. The gospel is creating a new family now. He's saving us into his family. So uh, in the New Testament, the church is described with various metaphors. A couple of them are uh, the assembly. The word ecclesia is, is the word church, right? When Jesus says, I will build my church, he's saying, I will build my ecclesia. It means my assembly, my gathered people. Right? There's no such thing as a church that doesn't gather. The church is also called the body of Christ. We're all parts of the body, right? With, with Christ himself being our head. I love what the apostle Paul says. He says, we can't say that we don't have need for one another because the arm needs to serve the leg and the eye needs to serve the ear. We need one another as the body of Christ. The scriptures also 
call us a holy nation. Second, First Peter chapter two. We have a different king, a different law, the law of Christ. Different social expression than any other nation. The church is a unique nation. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we see the church is a family of God. Brothers and sisters who learn to love and serve one another sincerely. So in what way is the church a family, a body, a holy nation? Brian Lachlan, he's a pastor, theologian. He makes this comment. He says, these are all matter-of-fact realities. The question we have to constantly be asking ourselves is, Will we live out these realities or will we buck against what God is doing in the world? Friends, in our consumeristic and individualistic culture, we oftentimes treat the church more like a social club than as a family, don't we? Now, what's the difference between a social club and a family? A social club uh, usually is about meeting my needs and my wants. A family is about learning to love one another even at the cost of our own desires. A social club we can opt in and out of at our choosing. In a family, even if you run away, you're still family. In a social club, we can orient ourselves around some common hobby or common interest, and that's essentially the extent of our relationships. In a family, all of life is shared together. Perhaps most significantly, in a social club, we pay our own dues to get in. But in a family... We're brought in by grace alone. In the family of God, we have been welcomed as brothers and sisters, not by our own payment, our own initiative, our own goodness, but on the basis of another, Jesus Christ, the true elder brother, the son of God. He paid the price for our entrance with his own blood on that tree, and he says you are mine by grace alone. The fact that we're family flies in the face of our individualistic and consumer mindsets, doesn't it? Being part of the family also means that we embrace as family certain values and practices that that shape all of our life, that that flow into all of our world, right? We we read the the Beatitudes uh, for our sermon text this morning, and in that we see that we value humility rather than pride and self-assertion. We value meekness, mercy, and peacemaking rather than retaliation and domineering, We value purity of heart rather than a lustful heart and being ruled by selfish desires. We value courage when things are hard rather than opting out for ease and self-indulgence. You see, our values are different than the world's, which is why Jesus says that we are the salt of the earth. We have a distinct taste. It it, it flavors and preserves every area of society that that God's people go into. He says that we are the light of the world. Godliness is a beautiful an attractive reality in a dark and dying world. We don't go into the world to hide our differences. We go into the world to shine brightly for Jesus. If we're going to live on mission, it has to start here. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How is the world going to know that Christ is king if we keep acting like the rest of the world? See, we want to grow in virtue and character and nobility. These are words that people don't use anymore. 
And we do that in the context of the family of God. Our primary community needs to be the people of God. It's here that we grow and learn and develop and adopt character and and values that are honoring to God and, and good for the world. You see, fundamentally, every healthy family is characterized by one primary virtue that bleeds into everything else, and that's love. It's love. Again, to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this. He says, The Sermon on the Mount is nothing but a great and grand and perfect elaboration of what our Lord called his new commandment. His new commandment was that we love one another as he has loved us. So this is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in in Matthew chapter 5 on the second half, he he goes deeper than simply behavior modifications. He, He goes deeper than telling us to act a certain way. He says things like, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, go and be reconciled to them as a top priority. Because bitterness and unresolved tension erodes family love. I mean, some of us today need to have those uncomfortable conversations with people. Maybe some of us have bitterness in our hearts towards folks in the church. And Jesus is saying, let's go make it right today. Let's go resolve this today. Jesus also goes deeper than not committing adultery. He says, look, if you have lustful intentions in your heart, that's the real problem. Because lust objectifies people rather than honors them. Lust sees people as objects to be used rather than people to be loved, and it erodes family love. Some of us need to confess sin today, don't we? Some of us have been ruled by an insatiable desire to get what we want, and we're using people to get it. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus comes into the world and doesn't twist our arms to try and get us to act right, he actually invades our hearts and gives us new desires. He changes us from the inside out. And the church is a family where we receive the grace of God over and over where burdens are taken off, our hearts are filled up with hope again, and we are reminded that we love because Jesus first loved us. Here's uh, Tim Chester again. He says, The Christian community demonstrates the effectiveness of the gospel. We are the living proof that the gospel is not an empty word, but a powerful word that takes men and women who are lovers of self and transforms them by grace through the Spirit into people who love God and others. We are living proof that the death of Jesus was not just a vain expression of God's love, but an effective death that achieved the salvation of a people who now love one another from a sincere and pure heart. You see, the good news of the gospel doesn't just declare us forgiven and free. It does that. It's not merely a uh, a transaction. The gospel transforms us. And the church is a proof that that's real. So how do we live into this reality? How do we embrace our God-given community? Uh, I have three thoughts here. First, we need to be realistic. Sorry, we, need, we all need to have a realistic expectation of the family of God. We're all sinners saved by grace. Which means that we will not live up to the picture-perfect dream of community that we have. We'll be shocked at our capacity as individuals to get it wrong over and over again. And oftentimes our pace of progress is going to be frustrating. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he talks about uh, having uh, 
He says we all come into the church with our expectations and our dreams as to what the Christian community is supposed to be like. And he says the quicker we're disillusioned of that, the, the quicker we can get onto the real thing. <laughs> Listen, we, we say it all the time. The family of God is messy. And that's just not like a cute saying. It's, it's true. Church is messy. We're a bunch of sinners on our way to glory. Which means that we can't look to one another to be our saviors. Amen. We definitely can't view ourselves as the ones who are going to make it right. Friends, we need to remind one another of Jesus all the time. He alone is our hope and hero. This family has a true elder brother, and his name is King Jesus. So we have to have a realistic expectation as to what life in this family is really like. It's messy, but it's glorious. We're sinners, but we're saved by grace. In and of ourselves, we're hopeless, but we have a hero who has come to save. Next, we have to ask ourselves, what's preventing us from engaging in deep community? Do we view time with the family of God as a hindrance to our ambitions and goals in life? We have to ask ourselves again and again, what do I really believe the good life consists of? Where I've been having uh, lots of conversations with folks lately, and a, a reoccurring theme over and over says something like this. A lot of folks will say, I wish I could be more involved in the church. I wish I could be more involved in community. I wish I could be more involved with the family. I just have so many other com- co- uh, competing things in my life right now. Now, I'm not arguing for simplistic answers to these very real realities. There are certainly different seasons of life that require different allocations of time and energy. I'm not saying that that's not real. But what I am saying is that we have to really ask ourselves, why is it that we're pulled in 10,000 different directions? What's driving that? Why do we keep saying yes to so many things that pull us away from the best thing? Maybe it's we fear that we're going to miss out on the good life if we say no to some potential opportunities. We, we fear that our kids are going to miss out on something if they aren't in all the sports and extracurricular activities, so we just keep their schedules and ours packed full with every single opportunity. We fear that we won't be able to retire and live a comfortable life, so we just keep seeking to climb the corporate ladder and to make more and more money as a source of security. Jesus is telling us clearly that the truly good life is the life lived in and among the people of God under his gracious reign. So what's preventing us from embracing that reality? What actual changes do we need to make in our lives in order to, make, uh, in order to embrace this God-given community? Lastly, I want to consider this. What, what about those of us who aren't pulled in 10,000 different directions, how can we lean into this reality of the family of God? A question some of us need to ask is, how can I help make it easier for other folks? How can I help make it easier for parents with young kids right now to engage in the family of God? Maybe I should come to church and and serve so it's easier for a young mom and dad. How can I help a teenager feel like they're part of the family of God? Maybe we should take a teenager out to coffee or lunch sometime. Hear their story. Pray for them. How can we make it easier for folks to engage in a small group? Maybe some of us should open up our homes and show hospitality. There's 10,000 different ways that we can make it easier for folks to engage in life in the church. And I think we all ought to be asking ourselves, how can we make it easier for others? How can we make it easier for others. 
Jesus is saying that this is a good life, a life lived in deep community as the family of God. So we need to embrace our God-given identity as secure and deeply loved children of God. We need to embrace our God-given community as the family of God, learning to love and serve one another. Lastly, and we'll close with this, we need to embrace God's amazing grace. This vision of the good life that Jesus is painting on the Sermon on the Mount, listen, is not based on human effort. It's based on human deliverance. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't telling us that what we need to do in order to be welcomed into his family. He's telling us what happens when he comes down to us and invades our lives by his grace. He's not telling us what we need to be in order to be accepted by him. He's saying, I accept you as you are, and this is who I'm making you into be. You see, embracing our God-given identity, our God-given community is possible for someone who has undergone a real and radical change of heart. This is what happens when Jesus hunts us down and brings us in. He doesn't twist our arms to get our acts together. He changes our hearts so that we desire this. You see, the difference between religion and grace are subtle but astonishing. Religion says, if I do these things, then I can become the person Jesus wants me to be. Grace says... Jesus changes me by his own doing and empowers me to obey. Religion keeps us at the center of our own lives and and the burdens and pressure are unending. Grace rightly takes us out of the center of our lives, puts Jesus and his finished work on the cross and resurrection right there and takes the burdens off. You see, this is why the Sermon on the Mount begins with being poor in spirit. God has to do all of it. We have nothing to offer whatsoever. The Christian life is from beginning to end a life of remembering and resting in the grace of God in the gospel. You remember the, the, the Sermon on the Mount is one great grand elaboration of the new commandment to love one another as Christ has loved us. Friends, Jesus has loved us with an everlasting love, with a perfect love. He has loved us at great cost to himself. He, he loved us when we were his enemies. He loved us when we were sinners. He, his love for us drove him to the cross where he, he bled and died so that we might be forgiven and free and welcomed as his own. Waterbrook, the command to embrace our God-given identity in our God-given community is an invitation from the one who loves us perfectly. This isn't a command for someone who needs something from us. It's a, it's a course correction from someone who loves us deeply. And he's inviting us into the life we all long to have while we're in this fallen world. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ends by saying these words. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and The winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Waterbrook, Jesus is telling us what the truly good life is. 
Jesus is telling us that when the chaos and the craziness and the unexpected storms of life come crashing down on us because of who he is, what he has done, what he says, we can stand firm, we can stand confidently like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. Jesus is offering us our life again. So if we're going to reach the next generation with the gospel, it needs to start with us. We need to build our life on the good news of our God-given identity, our God-given community. We need to display how the gospel gives us a deep sense of security and stability, that the family of God is where we belong, and the grace of Jesus is enough. Amen? All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you that in your kingdom you take burdens off. Lord, we confess that oftentimes we, we see these callings to embrace who you are and what you've done and who we are as a family as burdens to bear. And oh God, we pray that you would reorient our minds and hearts, that we would quickly lean in, trust that this is a true good life that we were meant to have. Thank you, Jesus, that you have come into the world to save sinners, establish your kingdom that will never fail. We love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.